You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. Had an opportunity today, went and uh, got a haircut for the first time in a long time. Since, well, really what happened was is at the beginning of the school year, I cut my own hair, and I mean all of them. I buzzed it all off, like kind of like Matt's, and just went all the way down. I can't, it doesn't look as good as me as on him, that's for sure. But I did that just for the sake of doing it, and uh, it took a long time to grow back to the point where I needed to have it cut. So I went and got it cut. The point of that is, is that this guy that I've been going to to do my haircuts for the last several years it was based on a recommendation from a friend. But I show up, and I, I jump in the chair to do the hair thing, and he's like, I'm so glad you came in here today. I was like, oh, well, it's nice to have business, I'm sure, all those good things. But he's like, no, he goes you're one of the only people I talk to. And I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, no, 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 like, I'm, you're one of the only people I tell things to, tell, like, real-life things to. I'm like, I come in once every, like, two, three months, maybe. He's like, yeah, I just, I can't wait till you get here. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, okay, and he's like, yeah, I'm done cutting hair. I was like, okay, what are you going to do? He says, well, I'm going to go be an electrician, but here's why I want to be an electrician, you know. It's for my daughter, and I want to improve my life for her, and, and I've really been doing a lot of soul searching, all these kinds of things. And he's a guy that just in our conversations, you know how you, when you're sitting in the barbershop, I don't know if it's the same for women at the hair salon or not, but you just talk. Well, this guy, for whatever reason, starts talking about like real life stuff all the time. Like he was going through a challenging relationship and he has his daughter and all these kinds of things. And I would just share the Lord with him. I would just talk about what I believe, you know, and the things that I know to be true. And, and he would take that and he you'd just, there's a mirror so I could see him. And he's just like, yeah, yeah, kind of one of those things. And so he's a guy I've been praying for for a long time, three years now, three or four years now. And I keep inviting him to church. I keep inviting him to church and he's not come yet. But I just, I just want to use that as an example for all of us that in our daily interactions, it doesn't matter where we are or what we're doing, the people that we come into contact with, there is something that we're going to read tonight in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that is why hairdressers and barbers and grocery store clerks and gas station attendants seem to want to enter into conversations with you that you may not have expected opportunities for you to share the gospel or just to love on someone with the love of Christ in ways that you didn't plan on or you weren't like necessarily contriving. You weren't trying to figure out, now how am I going to tell this, this you know, supermarket clerk about Jesus? And then something happens and they just enter into this conversation with you. There's a reason for that and I, I think we're going to see it tonight. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We read these two verses last week, but I want to read them again and sort of dive a little bit deeper into them. Paul says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Now, I want to break this down. There's four things that Paul says here that I think are incredibly important for us. When he talks about the ministry that he has, he's talking about the ministry of the gospel. 
If we simplify ministry, whatever it's applied to, a lot of times people talk about uh, ministries of mercy, where we're caring for people, ministry of needs, where we're providing practical things for people, right? Ministry of uh, provision, right? Money. Things like EEM, like we heard about on Sunday, where they're delivering the actual word of God, the Bible to people. All of those are ministry. But at the heart of it, anytime we talk about ministry, the root of that is the ministry of the gospel. That has to be the foundation of any other work that we do as followers of Jesus. It has to be the gospel. And the gospel, it's ours in the fact that we preach it. We're the ones who explain it to people or lay it in front of people, uh, the truth of the gospel. But it's God's ministry. And Paul recognizes this. It's a huge piece of the puzzle for him in his boldness, in the courage that he shows, in the faithfulness that he um, exhibits. It's God's ministry. He says, having this ministry by the mercy of God. And then he talks about this ministry in four ways. Four ways that we should copy in our own ministry of the gospel, wherever and however we find ourselves to be doing that. The first way that Paul preaches the gospel is boldly. Paul always preaches the gospel boldly, and here's how we know that. He says in verse 1, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. That phrase, we do not lose heart, if you, if you go into the language, and again, I, I don't like to be the one who says, and the Greek says this, because I'm not a Greek scholar. I use tools to find those things out. I go back and read the original language uh, through tools that I have. But the understanding of this, why we can say that Paul preaches the gospel boldly, is because when he says we do not lose heart, what he means is we are not cowards. That's the transliteration. If you were to take his exact words, he says we're not cowards. The further idea is we don't give up preaching the gospel when pressure has been applied to us. We're consistent in that. Paul says we don't lose heart. This ministry has been given to us by the mercy of God, and so we don't give up. We're not cowards when we're faced with outside pressure, people telling us don't preach the gospel. We preach the gospel anyway. And, and we don't give up. We're not cowards when there's inside pressure as well. I think we've all been in those places where we doubt ourselves. We doubt our own ability to share the truth of what we've been taught in the word. And when we, when we encounter an opportunity to share the gospel with someone, oftentimes we sort of chicken out on our own. Nobody pressured us. Nobody was condemning us or speaking poorly about us. We just chicken out because we're intimidated of what it means to share the gospel with someone. And yet Paul preaches boldly. I want you to refer to and, and think back to this, maybe perhaps read it at another time. Acts chapter 4. Remember when the disciples were brought in, they were arrested, <coughs> and they were charged by the, the legal authorities to not preach in the name of Jesus. And they responded by saying, we should obey God and not man. In regard to the gospel and proclaiming the truth of who Jesus is, we preach boldly. And nobody hinders that ministry in us. Now, while Paul preached boldly, he also preached humbly. He preached boldly, but he preached humbly. Look at verse 2. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. 
We've renounced, meaning we've, we've said we're not going to do things that are disgraceful to the name of God. We're not going to use underhanded ways. We're not going to be dishonest. We're going to be humble. And all you have to do is read through Paul's letters throughout the New Testament and how often Paul talks about his own failings. He's so humble when he preaches. He preaches boldly and powerfully and convict, with conviction, but he also preaches humbly. He's honest about the fact that he was one who used to persecute the church. He was one who was an enemy of God, and yet it was simply God's mercy that saved him and called him into this ministry. He was the least likely to be this evangelist. And perhaps, again, you might think of yourself in that way. I'm least likely to be the one on mission for Christ. I'm the last one chosen for the missionary team. And yet those are the people that God says, actually, because I want to prove my strength in your weakness, I'm going to take you who thinks that you're weak, and I'm going to use you as my tool and my vessel to go preach the gospel. And again, that's the theme of this whole letter, if we were to uh, outline it, is to say, man, God is strong when we're weak. Paul's a great example of this and how humble he is. Paul also preaches the gospel honestly. We continue on in verse 2. Paul says, We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul never went for attractional ministry. Paul was never one who was trying to compromise what he had to say, the truth of his message, so that more people would like him or more people would come and listen to what he had to say. No, Paul imitated Jesus in the example that Jesus showed in his conversation with the rich young ruler. You remember that story where the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the commandments? He goes, I've kept all the commandments since I was young. And that's not true, of course. We know that we've all broken the commandments. But, but Jesus doesn't even quibble on that point. He says, okay, if you've kept all the commandments, that's great. Good job. He goes, now here's what you need to do to inherit eternal life. Sell all of the things that you have and give the money to the poor, knowing that he was a wealthy man. And the man could not do it. And he went away sorrowful. And the idea there that he could not simply means that he would not. He, he said internally, I'm too much attached. I'm too in love with the things that I have in this world to sacrifice them to receive the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. Paul was honest in this way. He never compromised on the truth. There were times he preached, like I said, boldly and with conviction, but always with love, always with grace, and with honesty. And finally, the last way that, that Paul preached the gospel is again in what we just read. He says, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would, and watch this, he says, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Paul preached honestly, and he preached in a way that was obvious. That's the fourth way that he preached. He preached in a way that was obvious. There was no 
trickery. There was no mystery to the message that he was preaching. There was no elaborate ritual. There was no like, oh, so you want to be a part of the Christian club here? Well, do this handshake and then we'll be in, right? Like there was no secret code words. There was no, no secret handshakes. Nothing would withhold the truth of the gospel from his listeners. Paul simply preached it in an obvious fashion. People could look at their lives, him and his, his, uh, the people who accompanied him, his companions, and you could see that they were living out this truth that they were preaching. Now, it moves on to verse 4. Pardon me, verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This scripture sort of highlights the tension and the contrast between two um, theological schools of thought. Now, before I jump into that, I want to say this. There are a lot of parts of Scripture, even within the New Testament, letters that were written, that are supremely theological in nature, where they require a lot of study. There's a lot to be understood. Books like, you know, letters like Romans, even Galatians or Hebrews, these books have a depth theologically where there has to be this understanding of who God is before you can sort of gain the concepts and the understandings of things like justification, right? And, and what's, what and how salvation is acquired in a person's life. That's deep stuff. That's stuff that takes a lot of study. And then there's things like this, like 2 Corinthians, where 2 Corinthians isn't chock full of deep theology. It's there if you want to extract it out. But the beauty of this letter is that it's all about relationship. It's all about, okay, you know who Jesus is. Here's how you're supposed to act. Here's how you're supposed to live that out. Here's the effect of knowing Jesus on you, the church, the body of Christ. Now, the reason I say that this sort of highlights these two sort of schools of, of theological thought is this idea of people, or, or rather the gospel being veiled to people who are perishing. In verse 4, it says, in their case, those who are perishing, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. This highlights the difference between two schools of thought called Calvinism and Arminianism, right? That really boils down to this concept of, did I choose... Jesus to save me, or did Jesus choose me to be saved? That's the big debate, and that's been the debate throughout the ages within Christendom, within Christianity, and there are those who are like, no, before, you know, all time, according to Romans chapter 8, God chose those who he was going to save, and he condemned others to hell, and that's the part that makes everybody go, ooh, that doesn't feel good, that God created all these people and that before anything ever happened, he actually chose them to not be saved, that doesn't feel very good, and yet there's a position that you can take biblically that supports that idea. Then there's the opposite idea that says, no, God sends out his word, and we have to choose to be saved. We have to choose to believe upon Jesus Christ, and so we're a part of the salvation transaction. And so, well, which one is it? 
Is it Calvinism or is it Arminianism? Did God choose or did I choose? And the answer is obviously yes. That's, that's the answer. And now those who are staunch reformed Calvinists would go, you coward, Lucian, just choose a side already, right? Like they'd be like, you can't say that. That's so wishy-washy. And then Arminius would probably be a little bit nicer about it. And they'd go, no, you can't say that. You need to take a side, right? The truth is, is that the act of salvation, how it occurred, what was in God's mind when he created this existence and this reality that we know, it's impossible for us to understand the intricate details of it. But there are a couple scriptures I want you to meditate on in response to this idea of the gospel being veiled to those who are perishing. I want you to mark down Matthew chapter 13. And you could read the whole chapter, but specifically verses 1 through 11 is the parable of the sower. Jesus tells his disciples about the seed that is being thrown out onto different kinds of soil. And then verses 18 through 23, Jesus explains it, saying that the seed that's being thrown out is the word of God. And that there's these different kinds of soil, but the indication here is that the different kinds of soil that the, that the seed, the word of God, lands on are the state of people's hearts. Open and ready for it to be planted and for it to grow and to flourish. Or perhaps hard, rocky soil where the word doesn't penetrate the heart. It goes out, but it doesn't take root in the heart. Or it takes root quickly and, and people are excited about it, but when they come into hard times in their life, it kind of just goes away. It withers away, right? I, I, I tell you that because what it indicates is that you and I have a big part to play in our salvation. How is it that we receive the word of God? Are our hearts ready to receive the word of God? How is it that someone having heard the gospel when they were a young person and not responding to it later in their life then hears the gospel and they respond to it? Were they not say, Were they not chosen or elect in the first situation and then somehow it changed later on? There's a mystery in those things that we'll never fully understand until we're face to face with God. The other scripture that I want to put before you is John chapter 3, verse 19. Everybody knows John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. <coughs> but John 3, 19 says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Once again, a scripture that sort of gives us this indication that, man, we have a part to play in our salvation, not from the sense that we do anything to be saved, but that there is an interaction between us and God. There is an invitation given to experience his goodness and his grace. But Jesus would say that there are those who love darkness rather than light because their works are evil. So I want you to think about it this way, and this doesn't by any means sort of answer the whole calvinist arminianist debate by any stretch. There are scholars who spend their entire life, there are volumes that have been written about this topic. It's interesting, it's fun, it gets into some really weird conversations on the internet with people, but, but like it's, it's a great topic because it's talking about salvation and trying to understand how salvation works. But I want you to think about it this way for our purposes tonight. Does God call all people to repentance and salvation? 
Simple question. From what we know scripturally, does God call all people to repentance and salvation? The answer is obviously yes. We know that God desires none to perish. He wants them all to be saved. The call goes out into the entire world. In fact, we know Jesus isn't going to return until the word has been proclaimed to the four corners of the earth, meaning that all of the earth will have been covered with the word of God. It will have been heard. The gospel will have been preached. So does God call all people to repentance and salvation? Yes. Is God responsible for the salvation of those who are saved? The answer is yes. You and I have done nothing to earn or deserve salvation. God, by his sovereign grace, takes us and moves us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. He is the prime mover. We aren't stumbling around in the dark looking for God on our own merit. No, God has sent his spirit out into the world to draw people to himself. The word of God proclaimed and preached is what causes faith to grow in a person. And so God receives glory for salvation. None of us, no one, the best person ever in the world was ever deserving of that amount of grace because we're all sinners. And yet in God's grace... He saves us, and so he's the one who's responsible for salvation. Now, do all people obey God? The answer is no. Unfortunately, even with the displays of God's grace, even with the displays of his goodness, even with nature proclaiming his glory and his power and his creation, all these things, do all people obey God? The answer is no. And so it leads to the last question. Is God responsible for their damnation? The answer is also no. See, the paradigm shifts very quickly when you ask the, the correct question. Is God responsible for salvation? Yes. Yes, he is. Do you and I have some sort of part to play in this where we have to place our faith upon Jesus? Yeah, there's some sort of interaction there. But when a person does not choose to believe upon Jesus for salvation and dies in their sin and experiences what the Bible describes, eternal torment. Is God responsible for that? No. The Bible proclaims that that person, because of their love for evil, because they have been deceived by the evil one, it's their responsibility. John Calvin, who is, is a theologian, who is responsible for uh, elucidating what is called the doctrines of grace. He would be the guy that people follow when they call themselves Calvinists. But the funny thing is, is when you go back and study the things that he actually taught, he wouldn't have been considered a Calvinist by any stretch. And so it's funny that his followers call themselves Calvinists. Regardless, this is what John Calvin has to say. He says, The blindness of unbelievers in no way detracts from the clearness of the gospel for the sun is no less resplendent because the blind do not perceive its light. What John Calvin is, is explaining is the truth that, listen, just because someone's blind and can't see the reality or, or doesn't, doesn't have the ability to see the reality of the light doesn't mean that the light's not there. The light is there because God desires all people to come to salvation. Paul has already discussed this in part here in the text in 2 Corinthians. 
He talks about the veil that was over the hearts of the Jews. He says this, yes, today in uh, chapter 3, verse 15, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. And then verse 16, 2 Corinthians 3, 16 says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. When one turns to the Lord, the indication is, is when one responds to the call of God, when someone reacts to the grace that has been given to us. When we hear the gospel, the Holy Spirit draws us toward Jesus, compels us toward Jesus. It's then on us to turn and believe upon Jesus for our salvation. Another theologian from another generation said this, the God of this world is able only to blind the minds of the unbelieving. Refusal to believe is the secret and reason of the blindness that happens to men. The reason people are blind and don't see the light is because they choose to not see the light. It's funny, one of the most um, lucid questions you can ask an atheist, I'm not sure if you've ever done this, but you can go online and find debates on almost anything. I spend a lot of time watching those. Uh, but like atheist Christian debates are really, really interesting because it's always really amazing to hear someone who knows the word well and can sort of argue in a, uh, in a real organized fashion and they're not just yelling and pointing fingers at each other, but they're like talking about real deep stuff and like point and counterpoint and rebuttal and all these kind of really official ways of talking about this stuff. The one that always gets me though is when the Christian asks the atheist, hey, listen, let's just stop for a moment. If I could actually prove to you that Jesus was real, that the resurrection was real, that Christianity in, in what it is, in, in its essence, is true, if I could prove that to you, would you actually become a Christian? 99.9% .9 of the time, the atheist is stopped dead in their tracks. And when they're honest and has to answer that question, if I could prove it to you, would you believe? The honest answer is no. Because a lot of times atheists are atheists not because they can't prove, uh, not because they, they, they can prove that Jesus doesn't exist. They're atheists because they don't want to believe in Jesus. There's a veil over their hearts. But what does Paul say in the scripture? It's when you turn to Jesus that the veil is removed. So what's our prayer? What's our prayer for our friends that aren't saved? What's our prayer for my friend, the barbershop guy? Like, what, what's my prayer? God, remove the veil from their hearts. Open their eyes to see your goodness. Open their eyes to see just the grace that's been poured out upon their life. In the Old Testament, it says the rain falls on the just and the unjust. What does that mean? It means that God's grace is obvious to all people. It's not just followers of Jesus who understand the good things in life. Non-believers experience love and success and joy and compassion and all those things. Why? Because God is that good. His goodness is that powerful that even unbelievers who are spitting in his face or cursing his name still experience his grace. And so God, remove the veil from their hearts. Pull it back so that they can respond to the calling of the Holy Spirit. Well, verse 5 goes on and says this, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. 
For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the evidence that supports Paul's claims to be transparent and honest about his gospel ministry. Paul wasn't ever preaching himself. In fact, he did a great job of putting himself down in a God-honoring way, as funny as that sounds. He wasn't just being negative toward himself and saying, oh, I'm so dumb, I'm so stupid. No, but he would put himself secondary. He, he would offer himself as a servant to the church. He wouldn't lord his authority over the church. He would implore the church. He would beg the church. He would serve the church. He would suffer for the church. He was never promoting himself. You know, this is actually a warning for us. There's a danger within the culture of the church. And I, and I talk about these things a lot because it's stuff that we see around us in our culture here. It's interesting listening to James on Sunday and having spent a lot of time talking about the ministry of EEM overseas. Man, church is different in different parts of the world in terms of how they practice worship, how they devote themselves to, to honoring the Lord and worshiping God, what is acceptable and not acceptable to followers of Jesus, depending on the culture that they live in. Man, the gospel is, is different in a lot of places. And I'll say this, in America, as you would expect, because we live in a progressive culture, unfortunately, Christianity has become progressive in a lot of circles where they push the boundaries of what God's word says is true and right for us to follow. And they fall into the temptation of the Garden of Eden when the serpent asked Eve, did God really say? That's the big debate philosophically and even theologically in a lot of seminaries this day. And in our country, the church has been affected by it in really, really unfortunate and sad ways. One of the ways that that happens and one of the dangers uh, in the church here that we see that we have to be warned about and we have to be cautious about is exactly what Paul's saying. We have to be cautious about preachers, ministries, churches that are promoting themselves and not pushing Jesus to the forefront of everything that they're doing. You know, the thing is, is that I've, I've used this phrase several times. We would never verbalize our theology or our practice as such. We would never say, oh, I'm promoting myself in this ministry to attract people. But the reality is, is that a lot of times that's what happens. It's lived out practically. And this occurs in, in a really subtle way that perhaps e even in our best intentions, we don't realize this is taking place. But oftentimes, here's what I've experienced in this role as a pastor. Pastor, when you get on stage and you're there to preach the word, you need to be more open with the church. You need to be more vulnerable. You need to talk about yourself. Share some of your experiences. Tell, tell some stories. It wouldn't help, hurt if you told a couple jokes once in a while, Lukian. You're kind of a serious guy. Like, I've heard that feedback. Like, tell a joke once in a while. It's not that bad, right? Or like, or like tell personal, why don't you tell funny stories to, to sort of illustrate the truth of the gospel. Now, here, here, those things aren't bad in and of themselves. If that's a gifting God has given someone to, to use humor to sort of illuminate the scriptures or a personal story that applies some of the truths in scripture, that's great. I'm not against those things. But the subtle thing that can take place is, is that the congregant says, preacher, tell us more about yourself so that we feel okay about making the gospel about us. 
See, to many of us, the gospel is not the good news of Jesus Christ and his victory over sin. The gospel is the good news that I don't have to go to hell. Now, are both of those things true? Yes, but what's the purpose of the gospel? To glorify God. He gets all the attention. He gets all the glory. And far too often, we want to say, here's my story. I was a dirty, rotten sinner, and Jesus saved me. And look how great my life is now. Or even though I'm struggling, God's for me, and who can be again? And we like to take and turn the gospel toward us and make it about us. It's subtle. Are we a part of that experience? Absolutely. Is it good to tell our testimony? Yes. But who gets the attention? Jesus gets the attention. He's the one who saved us. God's the one who had the plan from the beginning of the foundations of the earth to draw you into his family. He gets the glory and he gets the attention. We need to be cautious of those things to make sure that our ministry is elevating and promoting Jesus and Jesus alone. And that's it. Verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This thrusts home, it pounds home for us the theme of this entire letter of Paul to the church at Corinth, that it's God's strength, not ours, that is on display. We are all common, just like clay pots. We're all created beings, just like vessels made of earthenware. We're all fragile, but we're also all valuable to our creator. And yet, check this out. The light within us is often only revealed when we're broken. The light that's within us, this light of the gospel of Jesus, which glorifies God, oftentimes that light is revealed when we're broken as these vessels that hold this light inside of it. I want you to read later on Judges chapter 7. Great story about Gideon, awesome prophet of God, Judges chapter 7, perhaps you've read the story before. God commands Gideon to lead the army to uh, battle the Midianites and drive them out of the land, and they're going to attack their camp, and there's like 22,000 Israelites. God says, no, that's too many. Boils it down to 10,000. He says, nope, still too many. Gets it down to 300 men going to attack the entire Midianite army. Why? To prove that it was God's power and not theirs. And the story's kind of crazy. It's not that everybody has swords and horses and they're going to go out and, and defeat the Midianites. No, Gideon says, here's the plan, guys. We're going to stand up on this hill around the encampment of the Midianites and all you're going to have in your hand is a trumpet and this uh, torch that's covered by a clay pot. And that's it. And then when I give you the signal, you're going to shout the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And then you're going to blow on your trumpet and break the pot so that the light shines. And then are we going to run down in the valley and slaughter? Are we going to use the fire to light them on fire? What are we going to hit them with the trumpets? Like, what are we going to do with this, Gideon? No, 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 that's it. You're just going to shout, blow the trumpet, and show them the little light that was, that was in the clay pot. And then when that happens, when they do that, there's confusion in the camp, and they're utterly, the Midianites are utterly destroyed. It's an amazing story. Go and read it for yourself. But it wasn't until that clay pot, that earthen vessel, 
was broken, that it revealed the power of the light that was inside of it. That's why Jesus uses that analogy in his parable where he says, you don't put a lampstand up in the house and cover it. You uncover the lampstand so that everyone in the house can see its light. And the truth is, is that the experiences that Paul's going to share with the church about his brokenness, about the persecution that he's endured, Jesus' own warnings to his disciples about the tribulation that we're going to endure as his followers, it's so that the light that's inside of us can be seen. When you squeeze a tube of toothpaste right in the middle, it's really satisfying, number one. But number two, when you squeeze something like that, you get to see what's inside, right? You see what comes out. The same is true for Christians, followers of Jesus. When we get squeezed, when we're put into pressure situations, when we're being crushed, you get to see what comes out. A lot of times... When we're put in pressure situations, there's things that come out of us that we're like, that's not good. <laughs> and then when we grow in the Lord and trust in Jesus more and our minds are renewed and changed day by day, we start to get squeezed in those same types of situations. And out comes things like blessing and not cursing, patience and love and joy and peace. And we're like, wow, how did that happen? Because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Well, verse 8, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Paul exhibits something here that, that again is a good model for us and it's something that he exhibits throughout his letters He's really honest about his experiences. Now, he's definitely not making this about him and putting himself as the central point of the message of the gospel, but he is sharing the truth of what he's experienced. Affliction, he's been perplexed, confused, persecuted, struck down, all of those things. And the example isn't that we're supposed to walk around talking about all of the depth of despair that we've been in in our life or just simply talking about all of our failures all the time, but rather that truth of our experience bringing out of us, just like the toothpaste from the tube of toothpaste, you get to see what's inside of us coming out, what's being cultivated and grown by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Paul highlights these truths in his life and in his companion's life as a blessing to those he's writing to. He says, we're experiencing these things so that you, go back to chapter one, you can be comforted. You can know that we're experiencing these things. We're, we are, we're, we're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed, right? We're perplexed, we're confused, but we're not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. You can receive comfort in knowing that I've experienced these hardships for the sake of Jesus. 
but I'm still going. God's faithful. He's good. And you can be encouraged so that when you start to experience similar things, because guess what? Jesus says you're going to. You can be a comfort to others as well. That's that sub-theme of this whole letter. The first theme, the big theme, is that God's strong when we're weak. The second is that in our weakness, the way that God encourages us and comforts us, we comfort other people. That's our job as the church. And so the purpose that he shares these experiences is not to commiserate with him or to feel bad for him, but rather to, to encourage the church to live the life that God has for you. And then to show that whatever the Lord allows in our lives, he will comfort us so that we might be a comfort to other people. I want you to remember this paradigm that is true. Many people want the kingdom as it's been described in the scripture. Many want the kingdom, but not the king. See, a lot of people want what Jesus promised in eternal life and the glories and riches of heaven and the rewards and the crowns, and they want all those things. But what they don't want is to share in Jesus' sufferings. It's a, it's a part of theology that has been sorely ignored in our generation, the theology of suffering. When we see the gospel just exploding in parts of the world that we just shake our heads and go, how is China leading the entire world in sharing the gospel with people? How is the church exploding in Iran? Like, how are those things happening? It's because a part of their theology, their understanding of who Jesus is, is not just the, the hope of salvation and the promise of eternal life. It's the expectation of suffering. Because in suffering, we're comforted by the presence of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. It's a song lyric, and, and it hits me fairly hard. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. We want all the blessings. We want all the good things. But we don't want any of the sacrifice that's involved. When you truly love something, it will always require you to sacrifice something. Well, verse 13 continues on, and, since, and Paul says, Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. When you're united in a cause with another person, their pain is your pain. Their joy is your joy. Their failure or their success, it's yours to share in as well. That's the dynamic relationship of the church specifically. The paradigm of grace received leading to rejoicing and thanksgiving within Jesus' followers should be a model for all people everywhere to reject selfishness, to reject self-centeredness, to reject self-righteousness, to reject those things and think about others and participate in their joy and in their pain so that we might be the example of Jesus to the world around us. 
verse 16 says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The thrust of what Paul says here is summed up in a simple, almost almost trivial statement, almost like a throwaway statement. And it doesn't seem to have the kind of power that we would want it conveyed with. It seems like it's just such a simple little statement here. And yet it's one of the greatest truths of the Christian life. It's one of the things that I, I, I think after we know who Jesus is and what the gospel is, his death and re- burial and resurrection, which is what our faith is based in, is what gives us hope, of our sin being washed away and life eternal. That's, that's the good news. That's the gospel. I think after that, this is something that I would point to for any Christian life as a point of discipleship and as a point of meditation and obedience even. And it's just this simple little statement. Paul says in verse 16, so we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. We don't talk that like that anymore. Like that's something from like Pride and Prejudice or Jane Austen. You know, that's like, don't lose heart, brother. You know, those kinds of things, right? Like we don't talk that way to each other. This is the idea that Paul is conveying there. And it seems so simple. And like I said, like kind of a throwaway statement, but it's so powerful. Paul is saying, don't lose. He says heart, right? The purpose is to say, don't lose your enthusiasm. That's what Paul is saying. That even in the face of trials, even in the face of persecution and all these things that he just talked about, he says, so we do not lose heart. He's, he's saying, just because we've experienced these challenges in life doesn't mean we lose our zeal, our love for the Lord, our devotion to do the work that he has called us to do. Don't lose enthusiasm. I think it's one of the things that we have Uh, again, kind of thrown a wet blanket over in the life of the church here, at least in Springfield. I don't know about the rest of the world, but I know here in Springfield, we talk about this all the time. We have these conversations where, man, I know there's Christians in, in town here, and I have relationship with a lot of them, and I talk to them. Nobody seems excited about Jesus. Nobody seems excited to talk about what's going on in the church and the growth of the church and the new Christian or the person that we're praying for. There doesn't seem to be this like energetic enthusiasm that puts Jesus first in everything that we're doing. All the rest of the attractions of the world seem to get the enthusiasm. Now, 2020 was an awesome, awesome experience for all of us. What? 2020 was horrible. What do you mean? 2020 took away from people a lot of the placebos that we use in our life to keep us happy and satisfied. I'll use the one that I, I can claim for myself to be true my, and for my family and for a lot of people, especially in this community, sports. Sports got taken away. Gone. No sports to watch, no sports to play, nothing to do. What do we complain about all the time? There's no sports. There's nothing for our kids to do. There's nothing to watch on TV. 
There's no reason to get together with people and, and have fun and, and eat food and watch. Like, it's gone. Well, if sports is the only thing that's important, well, then, then that's something to mourn. But if sports is just this little fragmented piece of our life that, that yeah, takes part of our life and is, is a part of our mission toward Jesus, and it's taken away, it shouldn't be that big of a deal if we still have Jesus. Well, that's really holy of you to say, Lucian. That's very, that's very spiritual of you. That's very, very good, right? Listen, Paul says we do not lose heart based on the perplexing challenges that we face in life, the things that would seem to crush us. We don't lose our enthusiasm for the mission that we've been given. Well, isn't it okay to have a bad day once in a while? Yeah, it's okay to have a bad day. It's okay to have a bad year. It's okay to have a bad decade or life in regard to what the world considers to be good. It's okay. Well, shouldn't I be able to come home after a hard day at work and just sort of be down in the dumps and just kind of just want to pull the, pull the window shut and close the drapes and just sit in the dark room and kind of just wallow in it? Not according to the Apostle Paul. Paul would say no. He, said, he says, we don't lose heart. And then he lays it out in real specific terms. He says, though our outer self is wasting away. Here's what Paul says. Hey, everybody, listen up. You're all going to die. That's what Paul says. He goes, the culture of youth, this is my words, but this is the idea. The culture of preserving youth, extending adolescence, finding toys to play with when you're an old person, toys that, that don't look like, like the little you know, Hot Wheels and play toys and, and, and the, the, the sports toys that you use when you're a kid, but the big toys, the houses, the cars, the boats, the guitars, the, 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 whatever, the whatever it is that you're into, right? That's not the thing. It's all wasting away. How many times throughout the scriptures we hear that this present world is passing away don't be attached to it. Don't be in love with it. If one day you have something that you love and it's a gift of God's grace and it's a blessing and it's fun, great. If the next day it burns down, okay. My world doesn't disappear based on my possessions, based on my position, based on my prosperity. Paul says, Though our outer self is wasting away, he says, our inner self is being renewed day by day. This is a theme that Paul speaks about frequently. He talks about it in Romans chapter 12, where, where we're supposed to be re renewing our minds day by day. Why does Paul say to renew our minds? Because the mind is where our thoughts come from. Paul would say in another section of scripture, the desire is conceived in the mind. And the mind thinks about the desire until it gives birth to sin. Our mind is the seat of our jealousy. Uh, the, the mind is the seat of our anger and hatred. It's here. Even though it comes out emotionally in a lot of ways, it's here. The mind is also the seat of our faith. This is what we get hit with first is our mind. We're presented with the truth of who Jesus is. The word of God is preached to us. The Holy Spirit gives us the gift of faith. 
A lot of times we think about faith as correlated to our hearts, but it actually begins in the mind. We understand our need for salvation. We understand who Jesus is as our Lord and Master. That happens in our mind. And then what happens in our mind is that it makes this little trip down into our heart. And we go, yeah, I understand it, but I also believe it. I hold it to be true for myself. That's when it locks into our heart. And so Paul says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And then verse 17, he says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Light momentary affliction. Cancer, the death of a loved family member, something that we would call premature death of a young child, the political disruption of an entire country. Are these light momentary afflictions? Paul would say, yeah, all of these things that we experience, they're light, meaning they're not that big of a deal in the scope of eternity. And they're temporary. They're only for a little bit of time. They're momentary. And here's the whole point of what he says ultimately. That the things that we experience that are negative, that are hard, that are painful, they don't even approach the level of glory that we're going to experience. In fact, the things that we experience here are preparing us to be able to experience God's goodness and glory. The best way I've heard this described, the best way I've heard this preached is to say that whatever your struggle is, whatever you've encountered that is painful, whatever you've encountered that is hard, whatever you've encountered that would cause you to question God's goodness, it wasn't for nothing. The thing that you've experienced and seen that was hard, it's working for your good. God is using it to prepare you to be able to enter into his kingdom and experience the fullness of his glory. We've learned recently that we live in the constant presence of God. We don't have to go to the temple anymore and make a sacrifice to be in God's presence. God is always with us. But even so, even so, we still don't see God as he is fully because we're wearing these flesh suits because we're still experiencing sin and separation from God because of our current state here on earth in an unredeemed world, when all of that is taken away and we get to behold God as he is, we're going to experience glory like we have never, ever seen or could ever imagine. And Paul says the things that we're experiencing, these light momentary afflictions, they're preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. I love that concept, that idea that's expressed in the ark where God's presence would sit over the mercy seat and it was called his chavod. And it was this idea of the weightiness of the presence of God and, and how like in, in Isaiah when it talks about how the glory of the Lord filled the temple like smoke. It was this like all-consuming presence this is God's glory that we get to experience, this all-consuming weightiness where you just, whoo, you just feel his presence. That's what we get to look forward to. No absence of God's presence filling up every crevice of our being, God's glory 
and presence. Paul says this is, these experiences are preparing us for that. In verse 18, he says, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The things that are seen are transient. It simply means that they're passing away. That's why I, I can't get connected to this stuff. The latest technology, the, the, the best and the biggest and all these kinds of things. Like, I, I just, I can't make those things that valuable to me. Why? Because I've had this for like a year and a half, two years, and next year I'm going to have to get a different one. And a couple years down the road, there's going to be landfills full of these things because they're passing away. They're, they're going away. They're not eternal. I know it sounds cheesy, but that old bumper sticker that says the one who dies with the most toys still dies, right? Like you can't take it with you. So invest in the things that have eternal weight, eternal value. Who cares what clothes you're wearing? Who cares what house you live in? Who cares what kind of food you eat? Like, invest in the things of God that we get to experience then his glory. For the things that are seen are transient. They're passing away, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That's the powerful statement is that the things that, that we're supposed to be doing as the church, as God's people, to comfort one another in our afflictions to point each other towards Jesus so that Jesus could be the one that ministers to us, to encourage people to, to turn towards Jesus so that the veil can be lifted from their heart and that they might see God's goodness and mercy and his grace and believe upon Jesus for salvation. Those things are eternal. In other places in scripture, it talks about rewards, crowns given to us when we enter into God's kingdom based upon the work that we did for him. Our salvation is not dependent on anything that we do, but the Bible would seem to indicate that our standing in eternity, our experience in eternity, in what we call heaven, is somehow enhanced or enabled by the work that we do on behalf of the Lord. And when it talks of crowns and jewels and mansions and those kinds of things, I think the writers of scripture were just grasping at the best examples that they could to describe them, I don't think we're actually going to walk around with crowns. And even if we do, the Bible says that we take those crowns and we throw them down at Jesus' feet anyway. But I think there's something to that, that we want to store up treasures in heaven rather than treasures on earth. There's a lot more I could say about that, but we'll talk about it at another time. We'll end there tonight, hoping to be encouraged by what it is that we've heard